Welcome to the 18th episode of the National University of Singapore Middle East Institute Postcard Series, Boots of the Ground, Security in Transition from the Middle East and Beyond. In this podcast, we look at the future of warfare, uniformed soldiers or boots on the ground being replaced by private military company, autonomous weapon system and cyber weapons. Today, we are going to discuss how private sector companies are evolving their approach to security and human rights, particularly when operating in complex or conflict-affected environment. My name is Alessandro Arduino, and I will be the co-host of the series, along with my colleague, Amim Lutfi. We're very excited today to have with us Mr. John Bray, who's the Director at Control Risk here in Singapore. John Bray is a risk consultant and a policy specialist with more than 35 years of experience. His particular areas of expertise include, but are not limited to, business and human rights, private sector policy issues in conflict-affected areas, and anti-corruption strategies for the private sector. He's also a long-standing specialist in Myanmar. John, thank you for being with us today. Control risk provides to its client a very wide range of risk consultancy. It includes political and regulatory analysis, integrity due diligence, security support in a risk environment, and kidnap and ransom response. If I recall correct, Control risk born out of a kidnap and ransom response in South America. On the surface, they seem very different things. We are talking about physical security, and policy analysis, and it doesn't immediately strike uh, as a very similar thing. So what is the basic philosophy and goals of the company that allows you to bring these different things under the same umbrella? And especially what kind of different expert and professional does control risk have on board? Floor is your John. Okay, thank you, Alex and Amin, and uh, thank you for inviting me to contribute. So first in summary, who we are, we're a specialist international risk consultancy. Uh, in, in one sentence, our role is to help clients build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient. So from that come various things. We work internationally. We work for a full range of different private sector companies, sometimes government agencies, sometimes civil society organizations as well, and integrity, and that includes human rights is a key part of what we do. So you alluded to our history. Maybe I could say something briefly about that. It's true, we started way back in the 70s, uh, working in the area of crisis management, specifically extortion, and specifically kidnap. We, in fact, we still have a, uh, our response team are still working on crisis management in a, in a range of areas, geographical areas, that is to say, worldwide. That leads naturally to prevention, prevention of security risk. And, and in that context, I should say we do have boots on the ground, specifically in Iraq, we have quite a few boots on the ground. Uh, that's an important part of our, our, our overall business, that is to say, helping companies operate in complex, sometimes high-risk environments on the ground. But we have a, a complementary range of services. Uh, again, prevention naturally leads to political risk, 
and also policy analysis, which is which is uh, my role. Uh, and it also leads to due diligence, for example, finding out who your clients are and, and, and cyber risk. So what is most exciting about the company is above all the combination. And maybe briefly, I could say how my own role has evolved. Uh, I joined the company way back in the 20th century. Uh, I was a, and still am a political analyst, but political analysis led on to two things. I became interested not only in country risk, but also in quite detailed, uh, practical, on the ground risk that led to anti-corruption as, as, as part of my portfolio, but also human rights. And I should say, I look at those issues from both a micro perspective, what happens on the ground, but also macro, what happens on the international policy environment. Just a final set of comments, uh, again, on my role within control risks. Um, my role is both internal and external. Externally, I work with a wide range of clients, not only here in Southeast Asia, but I work with colleagues globally on my areas of speciality. Internally, I also advise our colleagues on these issues. I'm the main author of our human rights policy, not the sole author, but the main author. Um, specifically with regard to Iraq, I wrote our baseline human rights impact assessment, and uh, I am also a kind of internal advisor. We have regular conference calls on, on human rights management. Thank you, John, for the response. Uh, you mentioned, I mean, you've been working on writing these reports and working in the field of human rights uh, for a long time. And I'm interested in if you could like elaborate on your own experience in the field and how you've really seen it evolve over the past, like let's say 30 years. Because here at our podcast, we've been very interested in talking about issues of transparency and accountability in, in the private sector, particularly in the private uh, security sector, uh, in, you know, but, but more broadly as well. And the human right issues like is at the center of it. And it seemed like from our discussion from other people, there's no clear answer for how to deal with issue of transparency and accountability. So I'm wondering if you could just speak about it from your own personal experience on how this issue you've seen it evolve over the past 30 years. Thank you. Um, so from my, from my perspective, I should say my perspective, this is an internal, eternal issue. Universal Declaration of Human Rights is 1948. No doubt there were precedents before that. But for me, this particular topic, human rights and the private sector, the starting points, maybe several points, are in the 90s. And actually, it's not so much in the Middle East, but it comes on to the Middle East, but I'm thinking of Colombia, Nigeria, Indonesia, Sudan, to some extent, Burma, Myanmar. A lot of the discussion in that era, in the 90s, it was specifically about extractive companies, that's to say, oil, gas, and mining. And it was particularly about what companies themselves did, and also what 
governments did on companies' behalf, and if something went wrong, who was responsible? And here I'm thinking about what could be classified as human rights incidents where government security forces did something controversial, apparently on behalf of the companies whom it was protecting. So those were the issues which came up in the 90s. Uh, for me, a landmark in 1998, we control risks together with Chatham House, a leading think tank in London. We organized a conference on business and human rights. And, and I remember I had to cross a picket line outside the uh, conference venue of people protesting about BP in Colombia. What that led on to, a, a, a key landmark for, for me is 2000. And this was the voluntary principles of security for, on, on, on security and human rights. So all, all, all those words are important. They were voluntary, um, they were principles, security and human rights. It was a multi-stakeholder initiative with government sponsors, US and UK sponsors and companies. BP, in fact, was a leading driver, but other big names we know, Shell Rio Tinto, and also NGO participants. The voluntary principles of security and human rights have three basic pillars. One is risk assessment. The second is second and third are to do with companies' engagement with government security forces and then private sector security. It's also an, an initiative. So we as consultants haven't been a formal part of the initiative. The former members are governments, and they now include several more governments, including in developing countries. Colombia was the first, Ghana is one. I don't think there are any in the Middle East, and that's a gap. Um, companies still mainly in the, in, in the extractive sector and civil society organizations. How that applies to us is uh, we work for many of those companies, we apply the principles in our own work. We often advise them specifically on implementation. And for example, we refer to the voluntary principles in our, in, in our own policy. So that initiative is still going on, it's still important, but then there are other things. From 2003 onwards, the Middle East does now come to center, center stage. In the aftermath of the Iraq war, there was a heightened focus on the role of private security, not only in Iraq, but I would say particularly in Iraq. So Iraq was to some extent the, the stimulus for a lot that then followed alongside the voluntary principles. Here, the Swiss government played a key role and there were two outcomes. There first was the what's called the Montreux document. Montreux is a town in Switzerland. And again, it was a set of non-binding principles, but basically on the standards which governments should apply in their engagement with private security companies. 
The second, which was also brokered by the Swiss government or facilitated by the Swiss government, was the International Code of Conduct for Private Security Providers, that's 2010, and that is specifically for private security providers. It's a set of standards which include and indeed focus on human rights. It's again a multi-stakeholder initiative, so governments have been involved, private sector companies, including us, we were founder signatories and civil society. And from that, there is a ICOC association, commonly known as ICOCA, and its role is to promote the code of conduct uh, and especially the implementation of the code of conduct by applying uh, and defining standards that they, they should follow and indeed certifying their operations. Thank you, John. You, you give us a, a broader view from devolution, from voluntary principle to Montreux and to ICOCA. Uh, we have been talking a lot uh, about ICOCA and with ICOCA, with Jim Williamson in our podcast previously, as well as with ISOA from the United States. And uh, I understand that Control Risk uh, has been a strong supporter of the International Code of Conduct Association. So basically, why your organization choose uh, to adhere to the code? And uh, in your personal opinion, you think that uh, self-enforced and multilateral grid principle, like in the International Code of Conduct, remain the best strategy for regulating the private industry in the security and risk management? Yes, thank you, Alex. So, so first of all, our, our involvement, as I say, we were uh, founder members, uh, we were involved in it, I can say, before the start, uh, and, and our retired colleague, Eric Westrop, and uh, uh, colleague, Chris Sanderson, who's still with us, was on the board for many years. Uh, the ICOCA board just recently stepped down, but is still involved. Uh, and for example, just recently, we contributed to an ICOCA webinar on this topic, on, 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 on security and human rights. So why is it important? Um, it's important for us because we have an interest in a responsible private security sector. We compete with our peers, but we want our peers to do a good job because if, heaven forbid, there is a scandal uh, because somebody infringes human rights, uh, because something goes wrong, um, then that affects the whole industry. So we have a collective interest in the promotion, I should say, the development and expansion of high standards. We think that's in our interests. We think it's in our clients' interest and it's in governments and, of course, in the interests of stakeholders on the ground, who arguably are the most important stakeholders of, 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 of all. I guess that leads on to a, a broader point about collective initiatives. None of the major problems that I spend a lot of time thinking about, anti-corruption, human rights, the climate, uh, none of those can be solved by single actors or a single set of actors. It's no longer government. 
who can do everything. Governments have an essential role. We can't do without governments, and I'll return to that point. But the private sector and civil society also are essential. So, so, so then, I mean, more specifically, what does uh, ICOCR mean for us? Well, we refer to the policy in our policy statements. I should say um, our policy statement would say what it does say, regardless of ICOCA, but we think that ICOCA reinforces, it does to some extent challenge us to think further. For example, um, one topic currently under discussion is gender-based violence and the prevention of gender-based violence. ICOCA is prompting us to give more thought to that than perhaps we otherwise would. Um, also, and, and, and this is particularly with regard to operations in Iraq, we are accredited and certified by ICOCA that we are in accordance with the policy and with the standards that come from the policy. The actual auditing is done by a third party called MS Global. I was actually um, in a good way surprised that my colleagues agreed to this um, certification. I thought they might say, look, who we were, we think they're the best. Why do we need somebody else to certify? But we do. We embrace the process. We learn from it. Um, we get good feedback. We get better every time. Um, this is part of a constant process of evolution. I stress evolution. Uh, and it's important for us. Again, I stress specifically in Iraq, it's uh, a kind of badge of approval, and we greatly value it. Uh, thanks, John, for the response. If I could get you to uh, elaborate on another set of guiding principles, specifically the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. Um, if I'm right, this June marked the 20th anniversary of the since, since the, they were set into being. So how do, and or perhaps like how should the UNGP uh, impacts both the policy and the practical implementation in the private uh, security sector. Okay, so thank you. Yeah, the UN guiding principles, UNGPs for short, are really, really important. Uh, for me, they are, if there is one foundation document in this area, that is definitely it. It's complements the International Code of Conduct, they complement and reinforce each other, but the UN guiding principles is fundamental. Why is it so important? It's because it applies to everyone in all sectors. Uh, and, and I mentioned that among other reasons because I don't think we should ever see the security sector in isolation. Basically, we're service providers for other people. We help them solve their problems, but they're their problems. So, so the security issues which apply to uh, oil and gas is different from digital services, for example, but the principles are, 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 are actually the same. Another reason why I really value the guiding principles is that it's brilliantly drafted. It's very clear. It doesn't tell you what 
precisely what you should do in every situation. No umbrella document can do that, but it gives a set of practical principles which you can apply. Uh, so, so, so I've, I've, I view the document and Professor John Ruggie, who, who drafted it with others with immense respect. So, 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 so then in what it says, there, there are three pillars. They are protect, respect, remediate. Protect. Protect, it's saying that governments have the responsibility to protect human rights. That's really important because, again, as I've emphasized, businesses can't replace government. It's governments who form uh, who, who, who draw up legislation, who are, um, who are responsible for enforcing regulation, who, to use a broader term, are, are, are responsible for creating an enabling environment. But business is responsible for respecting human rights everywhere. Even if there's no legislation in the country where they're operating, they have a global responsibility to respect human rights and then remediate when something goes wrong. Governments, business and civil society need to find remediation. The guiding principles points to a, a variety of possible approaches to remediation. It's a little bit flexible on how we get to remediation, but the point is that if something goes wrong, we should get there. So, 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 so then um, I'm saying it's critically important. What is the most important bit of the most important? of this important document, for, for, for business, it's about impact assessment. So classically, when you think about risk assessment, it's the risk to us, the risk to business. What can bad people do to us? Uh, what can they do to our, our clients? And you think of terrorists and whatever. Impact assessment is, turning that round, I should say this isn't exactly new, it's the evolution of um, consolidation of thinking that was going on before the guiding principles, but it's a really clear consolidation and statement, which also takes us forward. So it asks, what is human rights due diligence? It's about the impact on stakeholders, on other stakeholders, not just the impact on the business, but on the impact of, for example, communities, customers, people who live next to commercial operations. That's the crucial issue which we need to think about in human rights impact assessment. Um, and I should say some um, it's, it, the, 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 the guiding principles there are from 2011, 10 years ago. I, the way I often express it is that they set an agenda, and there's been a lot of work on that agenda about how to apply it in particular sectors. So we're talking about security. I COCA anticipated, but has also been fulfilling the guiding principles. Uh, one of the other developments that is still going on is that there is a general trend towards legislation on the need for due diligence. 
So, for example, Germany is in the process of uh, introducing legislation. So Switzerland, France has already done, done this. Uh, and, and, and the legislation is on due diligence, including human rights due diligence on the impact. So, so the common theme is saying companies should do due diligence, but it's gone from should to or it's going from should to must in in um, high risk environments. The trend is to say that companies must demonstrate that they have done this due diligence, which includes human rights impact assessment, which includes security. Again, to emphasize this point, all this is part of a whole. None of us work in isolation. Yep, John, to follow up uh, on UNGPs, uh, you, you stressed a lot the importance of impact assessment. But uh, my question is very straightforward. Why is human rights impact assessment very complicated for business with operation in complex environment? And how a proper risk appraisal, monitoring and mitigation process can make any difference? And uh, if you can possibly frame it uh, with a very specific example. Thank you. Sure. Okay, so I, I, I may, it's challenging, but I don't want to say that it's complicated because the principles are in fact straightforward. In Iraq, one of our watchwords is security by consent. Um, not only in Iraq, but especially in Iraq. That is to say, fundamentally, we can't operate without the consent of local stakeholders, which includes the government, but also includes um, communities, local people. Why is that important? Again, the, the answers are very clear. We know from international experience, we know from observation, but we know from talking to our clients that if you get this wrong, you have a security, um, you, 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 you lead to a damaging security environment, which in the worst case might make it impossible to operate at all. Uh, so to give some examples, my, my initial examples are Indonesia, but this applies um, uh, elsewhere. Um, in Indonesia, I remember a while ago, we had a case where local communities were blockading roads to a mine, so the mine couldn't operate at all, but there was no access to the mine. It was presented to us as a security problem, but actually it wasn't primarily a security problem. It had become a security problem. It was a fairly basic failure in the company's engagement with local communities fairly basic because once identified it wasn't too difficult to address uh, and to restore operations. Uh, you did use the word complicated and difficult. Um, so why is it difficult? I think for us uh, and for complex environments, one of the particular challenges which the um, guiding principle set is this keyword consultation that uh, 
that means it's important to consult stakeholders before an operation, before a um, project takes place, and I should emphasize during and after. Uh, in one recent project um, that I can think of, um, we were talking to a client and in fact with a uh, another consultancy specializing in, in, in this area, it was a really interesting project where the project was in fact specifically about consultation, I'm, I'm not going to name the country, um, it was something that we would have liked to do, but we took the view that we actually couldn't do it. We couldn't do it in a meaningful way because this is in a highly militarized environment where it would be impossible to do a, a meaningful stakeholder con consultation with the military breathing over, uh, breathing over our shoulders, monitoring and basically telling people what to say, whether they liked it or not. So, so, so then again, why is it difficult why, for, for us um, as controllers? Uh, here I want to be clear about where our role is. We are consultants. We don't, we almost never own projects. We're advisors to projects. We are um, enablers maybe, um, but we don't fundamentally own the project. So we might be involved as um, outside consultants in that early stage of, of consultation, but typically we would become involved when the project is already agreed, designed, and up and running. Um, so, so, so in that in that respect, we our name is control risks, but we don't control everything. We're we're we're, we're not owners. Much of our role in those kinds of situations, it's more, it's less about the initial consultation and it's more about the ongoing liaison and monitoring. So coming back to Iraq, um, we put um, a lot of emphasis on community liaison and engagement. Um, we have a whole team which specializes in, in, in that liaison. And one point that I should also make that is, is that in, in that kind of environment, not only Iraq, but also, for example, Kenya and even Nigeria, the security people are often the public face of the company. I'm one side, I'm downplaying our role because we're not decision makers, we're advisors, but often we are the people that people see. And in Iraq, somewhat unusually, because in most of the world, we don't ourselves set up guard forces, but in Iraq we do, um, we're, we're an employer. Um, so, 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 so that is also part of, of um, engagement. So, 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 so bringing all this together, um, the impact assessment is really important. It's something that needs to be done by everyone. We individually do our own assessment before taking on a project. We do our own monitoring while we're doing a project. 
in a complex project, we would have a specially set up risk management committee and we advise our clients on the ongoing monitoring. So the principles are simple. The practice is often complicated. Um, it's never a one-off. It's constantly evolving because situations are constantly evolving. Thank you, John. I mean, you brought up this the, the issue of working in a country with a with the military breathing down the your neck and sort of you know the the issue of of government has been recurring in many of the responses you you've given. So I'm wondering if you could give a more sort of concrete answer to um, how do you see the role of government in, or sort of the relationship of control risk to government security providers. And how do your clients collaborate and work with these government um, security agencies, be it the military or the police? Okay, so, so the, there are a range of issues. Number one, reaffirming the guiding principles, the role of governments in protecting human rights is essential. That's maybe an aspirational statement because governments don't always do this but we should never lose sight of the aspirations. Business can never replace government. We can support, but we can't replace them. So then, then, then a second issue, it comes from this um, security by consent. We can never operate in a country without at a minimum the consent of the host government. Um, that means Again, to cite Iraq, we place a lot of emphasis on compliance with government regulations. We didn't design the regulations, the government did. We have to comply with them. We do rigorously. That is an important part of our own business continuity. Our Iraq team is proud of always having a consistent record of business continuity with no interruptions in service, compliance is a key part of that. Then um, this partly comes back to the voluntary principles of security and human rights. And, and here, we our role is more often advisory. It's, uh, we are advising companies on their own liaison rather than doing, or, or their own engagement rather than doing it ourselves in our own name. It's the clients who own this, we advise. Um, one, of, one of the particular challenges, a cross-cutting challenge is what are the responsibilities of companies um, in a complex environment where they provide the security, the companies provide the security on their compound in their own operations but not too far away, um, government security forces are providing broader regional security, which may include protecting a strategic asset. If it's an oil, a big mine or a big oil operation, it is a strategic asset. So the, the complexity arises because governments cannot tell, sorry, companies cannot tell government agencies what to do. Companies cannot tell sovereign government what to do. 
they can influence them, they can establish a set of common understandings and the standard recommendation is that where companies are reliant on government security in this regard, they should establish a memorandum of understanding which lays down what is expected. Um, coming back to problem solving, it also lays down what happens when, when, when there is a, a problem. So those are the broad approaches. Um, applying them is a constant ongoing challenge. A lot of work has been done in this area. Uh, I, perhaps I could mention DCAF in Geneva. Um, DCAF is an acronym defense center for, and I actually can't remember what it does stand for, but, 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 but they have been doing a lot of really good work on, on, on how to apply these challenges. Uh, thanks. If I could now ask you a sort of a, a, a long-winded question that perhaps has two parts to it. Um, one part is about uh, we we have we met with uh, we had a conversation with from representative from Lloyd's Maritime Insurance, and they mentioned that one of the emerging trend is towards more proactive approaches to risk reduction. Do you see some elements of that or some uh, coming up with even within control risk of, of more proactive strategies to reducing risk? So that's the first part. And the second part is about post-incident uh, grievance mechanisms. So is are there any systems established for, let's say, locals who might have any issue with a, a client of yours um, after they've left to file a grievance or file any harm or a report um, with you guys? Um, and how do you see like both of these, the sort of the pre-incident and the post-incident uh, management and systems developing? Okay, so, so, so the first question is, I think straightforward and, and it's absolutely not new. Uh, we, um, I, I mentioned that we owe, owe our historic origins to problem solving, crisis uh, response. But from that, you very quickly come to crisis prevention. We help, we have helped people when they're in hot water. How do you avoid getting into hot water in the first place? So, so from really very early on, a major part of our work has been in prevention. And, and, and then that leads on to everything else that we've been talking about. Uh, prevention is not only or even mainly about putting up fences. It's about preventing the grievances which lead to anger, which lead to hostile reactions. Companies can't do that single-handedly, of course, uh, but they can and should take responsibility for their own operations. And that is what all this impact assessment and consultation, how it, however it can be done, uh, that's all part of it. So, so, so then on grievance um, mechanisms, um, I mean, here I should say, uh, I, I am emphasizing client ownership. Arguably, there are, there are two tracks. I'm emphasizing client ownership, but we can't avoid responsibility for, of course, we can't avoid responsibility for the things that we ourselves might do. One example, um, so, uh, I, I mean, one of the impacts, um, 
in, 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 geo, in a geopolitical level, this may sound minor, but from a, a villager point of view, it's not minor. One, one of the major impacts from a village perspective of a, a large project is to do with traffic. It's to do with vehicles, trucks thundering through, well, we hope not thundering through villages, but it, but it, but it might be. There, there, there is a risk of traffic accidents. Getting that right, this is not a geopolitical issue, but, but it's a basic local political community issue. Getting that right is really important. But then, but then what happens if, 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 if something goes wrong? Um, for our people in Iraq, um, we, in anticipation of something that might go wrong, heaven forbid that it does, but we hope it doesn't. Um, but we, for example, have prepared a set of cards, a bit like business cards in Arabic. If there is an incident like that, um, our immediate priorities will be about safeguarding our clients, but these cards give information on who to contact um, in, um, if there's a complaint or, 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 a, or a concern um, and how to address that. So we're not, we are doing this because we think we should, but I should also say, in, in practice, it is often a client requirement that we should have this kind of grievance mechanism. What we point out on that is, yes, fine, we, we need to do that, but our grievance mechanism needs to be integrated with yours, at the very least in the reporting side, but in practice in, in the remediation as well, because we're acting on behalf of clients. So, so, so again, all, all, all this is, I should say, practical common sense. If, heaven forbid, there is an incident involving somebody from control risk with control risk uniform, um, that is our responsibility. But since we are often the public face of the company, our clients, the washback will affect them as well. So, of course, we need to tell them straight away. And, of course, uh, we... We, we, we need to respond together. As I say, this is, this is something of a hot topic industry associations. Uh, I, I really like the um, ICA, ICMM, which is a mining industry association. It has excellent guidance on grievance mechanisms. So, 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 so does ICOCR. So, so, so we're constantly aiming for improvement continuous improvement on this topic, but most of all, we don't want to have any incidents. Prevention is most important. Responding quickly is also important. Um, one of the latest questions, uh, as uh, all the three of us uh, are uh, currently based in Singapore, please allow me to shift the conversation from the Middle East to Singapore, uh, asking you basically what's the role of control risk here and uh, in our previous podcast, we also have been talking about cybersecurity, uh, protection of critical infrastructure, protection against ransomware. So in your opinion, is there any growing interest uh, in the cybersecurity realm? Okay, so, so here in Singapore, we, it's a regional hub where, where between us working across the region. Um, we offer the full range of services, and to remind you, there are the political and policy analysis, 
their due diligence, including integrity due diligence, uh, the practical security management, uh, and yes, cyber. Um, I mean, I mean, one observation about the way the world is going, but our world is going historically. A lot of our work and a lot of this discussion has been about oil, gas, uh, and mining companies. Um, more and more of our work is for tech companies. That brings with it, both for tech companies, but also for the clients of tech companies, that indeed brings all sorts of cyber issues. In relation to human rights, um, several things. One, probably the single most important thing for, for our work is to do with digital rights and confidentiality and government regulations. In the sector more broadly, and, and we'd be thinking about this from a policy perspective, it's questions about how internet can be misused, for example, by propagating how social media can be misused. Um, again, in the sector more broadly, there are, there are important questions about government surveillance um, and but surveillance of private sector services and and and, and how, how that affects human rights so you should I don't, I don't want to link that to any one country um but, but but it is a thematic issue that is arising in several high-risk jurisdictions i'm emphasizing that because i'm not talking about singapore i'm talking about places outside singapore um in relation to cyber security more narrowly um, yes, of course, um, we here are primarily concerned with cyber fraud. Uh, we're concerned with hackers. Um, there may be behind that, uh, of course, in, in, in some of the more high-profile cybersecurity uh, cases, um, there may be concerns about government involvement. I, that, that's a much broader topic. Uh, thanks, John. I mean, this has been an exciting conversation, but uh, to wrap it up, I want to ask you a question that we've been asking all of our guests, and that is, uh, in the coming, let's say, 30 years, how do you see the future of risk management evolving in a complex environment? It's a, it's, it's a very broad question. Uh, last week, I was asked a question not about 30 years, um, but about five years. And the word which instantly sprang to mind was fragmentation. So running with that stream of consciousness about what could happen in the next five years, potentially the next 30 years, we could see a world of increasing fragmentation. Um, and here I'm thinking uh, recent events, um, Afghanistan, Myanmar, what we don't want to see, but what we could see is, heaven forbid, but failed states, which are places where our kind of clients can't operate, but which are providing a broader source of security threats more broadly and then then continuing with the word fragmentation you, you could think of enclaves enclaves of security housing estates which are safe 
cities which are safe, commercial operations that are safe, but are surrounded by highly unstable places. So, so that's a rather dire view of what 30 years time could look like. What I'd hope it to look like, and what I'd like to draw out of this discussion um, is the opposite. So throughout this discussion, I've been emphasizing collaborative approaches, multi-stakeholder approaches, cross-sectoral approaches, where security is part of a, a, a whole, but it's not simply an actor on its own. All, 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 all of us are connected and connected in a good way. As an aspiration for how we take this work, the work that we're doing a stage further, we've mentioned risk assessment, we've mentioned impact assessment. I'd like to see more on the broader role of conflict sensitivity and conflict impact assessment. So when large companies invest or when we set up services in a complex environment, we're not passive actors, we change things. All being well, we change things in a good way, but sometimes you change things in a bad way because you create divisions, you create jealousies, one part of society benefits, but another part doesn't. So I'd like to hope for, wish for, and contribute to more work on this area of complex impact assessment about how we avoid negative impacts, but establish constructive, self-reinforcing, positive impacts, which contribute to collaboration and not my worst case scenario, which is fragmentation. Well, thank you so much, John. I mean, I hope that your, your more positive or more optimistic outlook ends up becoming true. Well, this has been an exciting and very enlightening talk. You've really got taken us through the a very detailed analysis of of not just controlled risk, but the, the, the risk landscape in general and the security landscape in general. So thank you um, so much for giving us your time and for the talk. Um, I also wanna talk, I also wanna thank in the end, our listeners uh, who've been tuning in, please do keep us sending your comments and suggestions. And also thank you to the events team at here at the Middle East Institute without whose support this podcast would have been not possible. So please do keep listening and tune in to our next podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you.